Now, first off, I wonder if you can think of somebody you've spoken to about Jesus Christ, and the result has just been a categoric disaster. Like, it couldn't have gone any worse. Well, imagine if you had the chance to meet that person again, to be in the same room, the same place where that happened, and you could pick up that conversation where it left off. What would you say? And I wonder, how would you be feeling? I just want to acknowledge as we uh, dig into this passage a little bit more that it is, it's challenging on a variety of fronts. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't say that yet you're a Christian. And you've had maybe that experience of meeting someone who's shared something of their Christian faith with you. But it's been just a real switch off. It's like they are trying to ram something down your throat that you're just not ready for yet. It's, it's not helpful. It's too much, you might feel. Um, that's not a nice place to, to be in, I'm sure. On the other hand, maybe you are a Christian who has tried with, with insincerity to, to try and uh, share something of your faith uh, helpfully to, to encourage somebody else to point to the Lord Jesus, but that's not, been, that's not been received well at all. Sharing our faith with others can be really hard. It's a fear of rejection to begin with. We had a family Christmas get-together last year which is quite nice, you know, not being able to uh, the year before because of COVID. We all got together, which was lovely. And I remember my brother's girlfriend turned to me and said something like, oh, so you used to be a journalist before, but you've quit your job to go to Bible college. Like, why? Like, how did that come about? And we, we had a chat, and she said, oh, okay, so... So your faith clearly must be quite important to you if you're going to college. And we just had a super, like, what felt to me like a really nice, positive conversation about why I'm at Bible college. Um, return to London after the Christmas holidays and get, get an email from another member of my family who was in the room uh, while that conversation was playing out. And it was stinging. It really was stinging. Um, six months on, and it still actually feels quite painful to, to think about some of the words that were in that email of what this other member of my family took away from my conversation uh, with my brother's girlfriend that uh, it was you know, judgmental and obsessive and sort of all these really quite painful words to hear um, in, in, about the way that I try to share something of my faith um, with this woman. So there's that fear of rejection. There's that sense of feeling maybe incompetent to the task as well. Uh, one of my best friends lives up in Newcastle now, and he's just finished his PhD. He's a staunch atheist, but really open to having chats uh, about faith, about spiritual things, and we do that fairly regularly. And sometimes I just come away, well, quite often come away, thinking I've probably done nothing at all to to try and convince this guy. You know, he is articulate, he knows exactly how to answer every point I make, and I think I am way out of my depth with this guy. And maybe there have been past times where not only maybe we've sensed that feeling of rejection or being incompetent, but we just feel like we've failed and we've just got it horribly wrong. 
I uh, remember starting a new job um, on a news desk. I'd been there maybe a couple of weeks tops when I got chatting with uh, a guy opposite me. He was asking me about my faith and asking me, um, yeah, some, some quite difficult questions, hot potato topics about what Christians believe. You can probably imagine what they were. Uh, and I, uh, you know, the newest member of the office, didn't really know anyone. It was actually sort of quite straight down the line answering his questions. Um, but looking back, I think, how would that have been received? This guy didn't know me. I was just uh, putting what I believed out there. And the guy didn't talk to me again for another, well, he left a year and a half later. We barely spoke in those, uh, in between 18 months. And just to have had what I reflect on is not a great conversation, you know, just to, just to put it all out there without any sense of wanting to listen to him. What does he believe? What does he think about these things? Rather than just dumping it all out there and saying, this is right, this is what I believe. No real attempt had I made to build any sort of relationship with him first. Well, I think hopefully there are some encouraging things to take away from today's passage, which speak into some of those things. And if that resonates with you, if anything of what I've shared resonates with you, um, I hope that you will in turn be encouraged by this passage as well. I want us to think about you know, how, how God might answer through this passage some of those questions about why do we do evangelism anyway? Or what encouragement is there for a Christian who might feel like an embattled evangelist? But before we have a go at answering some of those questions, uh, let's just set the scene, if we can, for where we are in our journey through Acts so far. So Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come, and we've seen throughout the book of Acts so far the sort of twin themed of numerical growth in the church, but at the same time, deep-seated opposition as well, just as Christ promised. We've seen threats internal to the church, like the deception of Ananias and Sapphira, haven't we? And we've also seen something of the external uh, threat uh, posed to the church as well. Think of the religious authorities opposing Paul and Silas and them ending up in prison. So today's passage begins with uh, Paul and his companions arriving in Thessalonica. And this is where I think we arrive at our first point. I want us to see how Jesus' message firstly indwells. Jesus' message indwells. So Paul arrives in Thessalonica and arrives, his first point of call, interestingly, a bit of a theme through this part of the book of Acts, he goes to the synagogue, the, the vocal point for uh, the proclamation of the gospel in this part of scripture is again and again, it's the synagogue. That's where Paul goes, first of all, to tell people about Jesus. It happens in Thessalonica, it happens in Berea. How do people respond? Verse four, look down with me if you can. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. The different responses to the gospels that we, the gospel that we 
hear about in this passage perhaps uh, evokes something of the parable of the sower that uh, we read about in the Gospels, where uh, the word of God is like seeds scattered out on uh, different types of soil. Sometimes it's a thorny soil. Sometimes it's a a soil where the birds uh, swoop down and uh, take the seed away before it has time to properly grow. But then in other cases, uh, the seed uh, falls and, and, and roots go deep and the, the crop is fruitful and multiplies. Sometimes the message to the gospel is positive. Jesus' message indwells. Next we see Jesus' message does the complete opposite. Jesus' message repels. Some people are opposed to the message of Jesus. And we see this in a variety of ways, don't we? Firstly, antagonism. Verse 6, there's a mob, there's a riot. False accusations, he's branded a troublemaker. Let's return to to verse 5. What's the real motivation for what these other Jews are doing in their opposition to Paul? It says they were jealous, doesn't it? It says they were jealous. I was a little while ago, maybe a few years ago, at a, at a conference on evangelism over at All Souls Langham Place, and there was a guest speaker from America, you might have heard of him, uh, Randy Alcorn, and he described something of the journey that uh, a person might typically go through in becoming a Christian, and he put it out like a, an, alf- uh, an alphabet, sort of A to Z, and they sort of start off at A, B being really not open to the gospel at all, not really wanting to hear anything about it at all, to right through to Z, where actually someone has become convinced and they're ready, they're ready to make that decision to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And it is that sense of that gradual process of people uh, moving along multiple times before the, the gospel is accepted. John Calvin, the French theologian of the 16th century, uh, perhaps one of the most influential Protestant theologians uh, ever, see how he puts it. He says of this passage, Paul could nowhere erect the kingdom of Christ without some conflict. All the servants of Christ, that's every believer, every believer in this room, all the servants of Christ must be content with this one example. So Jesus' message repels or indwells. Thirdly, I think we see that Jesus' message is costly. Now, you might have been following Acts so far and thought, hasn't, like, poor guy, hasn't Paul, like, gone, enough, gone through enough already? He's been uh, forced to, to flee town after town. He's been in prison. You know, if you've read the book of Acts before, you'll know that things arguably go from bad to worse for Paul. He's shipwrecked and beaten, uh, eaten, uh, bitten by a poisonous snake. It, it really isn't uh, an easy time for him at all. And yet, all these different episodes that form um, what God is doing in Paul's life in this part of Acts is, a, is an opportunity that he has created for the gospel to spread. Some people are ready to hear, and others are not. A few of you might know, I come from the south coast of England, 
Sussex by the sea and uh, spent a large period of time as a child going out into the countryside looking at the different fields and I was always quite curious as to you know exactly where my Cheerios came from and like you know was, was this you know were the wheat Cheerios possibly made in a field like this like what's that growing over there is that corn is that wheat and then occasionally you just get to a field where there would be literally nothing it would just look like mud nothing growing at all of course sort of growing up you learn a little bit more about the way of farming and agriculture and you know that for a time fields are often left fallow for a season for the nutrients in the in the soil to return so that when seed is eventually planted things can thrive and grow and maybe that's a picture in a way of you know the gospel going out and in some fields there's no visible sign of fruit yet because it's not time uh, for the seed to grow. I think there's a big and, and maybe an obvious but in all of this, maybe for us as listeners, something along the lines maybe of, but Paul? But Paul, did, did he deserve something of this treatment? Was he obnoxious? Was he being rude and oppressive to people? Well, the Bible says that, that the gospel is offensive or a stench to those who are perishing. Think of a woman in Pakistan by the name of Azia Bibi who for a number of years was on death row for blasphemy. She was a, a married mother who uh, was accused of um, blasphemy after she took a water cup in the village where she lived, which was um, for Muslims only, and as a Christian, uh, she was caught using it and sort of outed as a Christian and spent the best part of a decade um, on death row for her faith. If you look around the world, the Open Doors watch list, places like that, we see that there are millions of people all around the world who suffer like Azia Bibi did, simply for their faith in the Lord Jesus. So I think that leads us to something of a big idea from this passage, that sharing the good news of Jesus brings both acceptance and resistance. The gospel indwells or repels. But the great news is, the encouraging news is, isn't it, that if we share in Christ's sufferings, we can have that assurance that we also share in something of his glories. 1 Peter 4.13 is a great passage to turn to uh, on this. It says, Rejoice when you participate in Jesus' sufferings so that you may be overwhelmed, overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So I wonder, you know, what is, what is Jesus saying to us today through this passage? What is he saying to us here at Inspire St. James? Well, I think he might be saying is this. Will you speak of me even when it's costly? I can maybe share an example of what this uh, looks like. Um, as a child, every month pretty much, I'd hop on a train and uh, go visit my grandma who lives in Brighton. And every, yeah, every month, for, for year after year, we would go to the exact same uh, pizza place 
uh, down in the lanes in Brighton. And we'd, yeah, we'd have lunch together. My grandma would, would buy me lunch. And, and over the years, um, she brought me back so many times uh, to the gospel, wanting to, to teach me, to show me uh, who Jesus is, and to just trust him and to follow him. And as I, as I grew older, my grandma uh, shared a little bit more about her life with me and, and some of the um, complicated relationships that she'd had. This is a woman who'd, who'd been married three times. Um, my mum uh, was the daughter of a man who wasn't one of her husbands. But she just took incredible comfort from knowing um, that whatever regrets she might have of relationships that she'd had in her life or mistakes that she'd made, she knew that all of that had been dealt with through the Lord Jesus. And her love um, moved me to, to want to um, know Jesus for myself. It wasn't until years later when I was at university, but um, those lunches over several years as a, as a child, as a teenager, um, have stuck with me, and I thank God uh, that my grandma was willing to talk to a moody teenager who didn't probably didn't really want to know, to be honest, about, about her faith, but she shared with it with boldness to me anyway. But if we hone in a little bit and think about what might it look like for us individually to say yes, maybe there's a, a tricky relationship in your life where God might be calling you to keep investing in. I shared something of uh, how it felt opening that, you know, that rather stinging email from a member of my family after Christmas, feeling like they were um, maybe un unpicking my faith and that, just that sense of rejection, that sense of, you know, I tried to share something and it just got shut down. And, and, and wanting, maybe, in, in light of what we've read here, to, uh, to keep sharing. There's a fantastic article in the news this week. I don't know if you've got a chance to, to read it, but um, it was a, a piece written by uh, Matthew Paris. He's a columnist, a commentator, writes for the, for the Times. And uh, this week he published uh, a little column where he talked about an encounter he had uh, in central London. So just, just down the road, he, he was coming back from a banquet in the city where he'd been paid like a thousand pounds to speak at this banquet and uh, he bumps into a Deliveroo cyclist on the way home they stop at a junction and this young chap maybe in his early 20s uh, pulls up alongside this guy and says you're, you're, you're Matthew Paris and he goes yes I am do you believe in Jesus and Matthew Paris turns and says, I believe that he was a real person, I believe that he was a historical figure, but I don't believe that he was the son of God. And this young delivery cyclist thinks for a little bit and says, well, Jesus said he was, though. To which Matthew Paris just says, well, personally, I'm, I'm just not convinced. And this delivery driver, you know, the lights change and he's cycling off and he turns to Matthew Paris and says, well, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to pray that you will know Jesus. And cycles off, probably earning, you know, 14 quid an hour, this, this young guy doing his delivery, 
just bumps into Matthew Paris. And here's what he says, Matthew Paris writing in this column in the Times this week. As the cyclists move on, moved on, he said, I walked away, curiously moved. You know, this, this big, well-known uh, journalist, if you know anything about Matthew Paris, you probably know he's quite an outspoken atheist. And this younger guy just having the courage to share something of his faith with him. What boldness. I want us just to, just to take a minute now, just to think about uh, what uh, Jesus might be saying to you personally with that question. How will you speak of me even when it's costly? Let's just take a moment now. Imagine getting, to, imagine getting to meet people in eternity who have become followers of Jesus because God has used you in their life. Imagine looking ahead to that day and um, not feeling quite so constrained by inhibition, by fear, fear of people and what they might say because our eyes are fixed on that eternal perspective of being with Jesus forever. And as we look forward, let's not forget to look back at what Jesus has suffered already for our sake on the cross. His full obedience to the Father, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, knowing it would cost him his life. Let's, uh, let's close and pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, read these words and we um, praise you for how your uh, gospel was proclaimed from place to place. And these things which look like horrible setbacks and fierce opposition were actually opportunities for the gospel to spread from, from Thessalonica to Berea and on to Athens as Jesus promised that it would reach all ends of the earth. We thank you so much that uh, uh, by your Holy Spirit the word is going out and we, we pray that we would see something of you that is so captivating and beautiful that we would want to go and share um, something of the Lord Jesus uh, with the people around us in how, we, in how we work, in how we live and in the words that we say. We pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.